I think there comes a point in your life, in my life, I think where we can kind of consume too much. In fact, I think it's even probably worse than that. We live in a world that's full of consumerism. And often, without actually like us like, like attempting to or trying to, I think we can take that same mindset, attitude, disposition into our relationship with God, into, into uh, the way that we view the church or what it looks like to be a flourishing and wholesome Christian. And so today I've titled our talk, Take Off Your Bib, Put On Your Apron. Take Off Your Bib, Put On Your Apron. You know, I remember uh, uh, skating home from school. Um, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, not, not, not for school. Uh, I always had a rule in my house where I had to be home uh, when the street lights turned on, right? And because, uh, like, there was no cell phones, right? So it was like your parents need to know where you are. Lights turn on, boom, you're skating home. One of my favorite things that I would see coming home is when I would open the front door, look to my left, I'd see my dad. And my dad was a phenomenal cook. I would see him in his apron. He would be making, like, these insane meals. And so every night, like, he would make, like, like, three to five course meals. It was, like, insane. Like, it was, like, I would start with soup, and it would end in, like, creme brulee. It was insane, right? Lobster and a bunch of other, like, random things just because it's Tuesday, right? It was awesome. And then Saturday mornings, I loved it because I'd wake up to, like, the smell of bread or, or my dad always used to make this, like, like he made, like, world-famous beef jerky. It's one of the things I miss so much since he's passed is, is his cooking. And I always knew, right, when my dad put his apron on that I was going to have a good meal. Right? I always knew that when he put his apron on, it meant that he was going to do something, right? that he was going to make dinner for his family. When I think about this, uh, the analogy that comes to my mind is kind of bibs are for people who kind of want to be fed. Right? Bibs are, are, are for those of us that are not really like, willing or maybe know how to feed ourselves. And then I know a lot of Christians who wear bibs. Right? Like they just don't understand really much of the Christian faith or they think that the church exists for them in some sense of the way and for their needs. But aprons, see aprons are, are for those who, that know that they are the church. Aprons are, are for those that take time to grow and seek and, and know more about God outside of just this one Sunday night service. See, aprons are for those that are preparing a way for others to know God as well. See, I think the main difference between a Christian who is wearing a bib and one that wears an apron is they get that their faith is their faith, right? And in some sense, of the way they, they're not a renter anymore. They're an owner. They're taking responsibility and they're actively growing in their faith, doing what is required to make their relationship with, with Christ flourish. But there's an epidemic, I think, in modern-day Christianity, and I've studied church history, and I think this epidemic, this virus, this cancer, in some sense of the way, I think it may be even a heresy, it's called consumerism. And it's going to, it's a cancer to a flourishing relationship with God. It's going to inhibit you from moving forward in the plan that God has for you. And so if you're a follower of Christ today, and I don't want to be preachy in the sense of where it's like I'm like, condescendingly talking down to you, more so that as I've been like journeying through scripture, I'm finding more areas of my life of apathy, of indifference than I've ever found before. I think God's doing something in my life that I just want to share with you that I'm learning that, yeah, I stand on the stage and I say this about God wants for your life and God wants for that, but as I look at scripture, it's becoming more of a mirror to me and, I'm, and I'm, I myself am being convicted of some of the things that I'm saying to you that I'm not actually living by. And so if this isn't for anyone here tonight, well, thanks for just hearing me talk to myself, but tonight my, my prayer is that, is that you can kind of begin to examine your motives. Examine your heart, examine kind of what's going on in your life, and I want you to kind of really see how active you are in your faith. Like, what is your relationship with Christ really like? And I'm not just really talking about like serving, or if you're tithing or not, or any of those things. But the, really, the core of what I'm trying to talk about tonight is, do you get what Christianity is really asking of you? I mean, I said this a few weeks ago, right? There's no version of Christianity that isn't asking for all of you. Sure, we've watered it down some, and we could say, oh, and I just come on Sundays, you know, I, I put a dollar in the offering bucket, and, and that is what Christianity is. No, Christianity is so, so, so much more than that. And so maybe, maybe you've been here for years, maybe you've been sitting in these chairs for months or whatever it is, and your life hasn't changed because you haven't changed your life. 
I mean, maybe Christianity or, or, or the church has, has been something that you've kind of like added onto your life, like a, like a sports club, and not something that you are devoting, you are centering your life around, or maybe you're a follower of Christ, but if I were to ask you, hey, when was the last time like you read your Bible? You'd be like, uh, last Sunday when you spoke on it. <laughs> or maybe I'd say, hey, where was your Bible in your house? You'd have to go f- maybe try to find it, and it would take 30 minutes, and then when you grabbed it, it would have an inch of dust on it, and you'd blow it off, and then open it up, and it'd go, right, and then you, it would say, this is that one, you went, because you closed it because you didn't know what it meant. Or maybe, maybe I said, hey, when was the last time you fasted? Or when was the last time that you just sat in, in, in solitude asking God to speak to you for one hour? When was the last time that you gave God any of your time outside of these services? Maybe that answer would be never. See, many of us, many of us may say with our mouths that Jesus Christ is the most important thing of our lives, but we live in a way that proves that that's not actually true. May I say that you, I think if that describes you, you may potentially be in the most dangerous place you can possibly be in all of Christianity. In fact, it may actually be better for you to be an atheist than a casual Christian. You know, I think that this obviously isn't something new. In fact, it's not even new to Christianity. In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, it's it's a verse you guys may know. It says this, because I think God knew. Well, let me read the verse first. It says this, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I think you and I have a misconception of what this verse is really communicating. It's not just that when you stub your toe, you can't use God's name as a cuss word. Yeah, don't use God's name as a cuss word. But that's not actually the epicenter of what this kind of verse is communicating to you and to me. Rather, what it's saying is, don't say you follow me and then live a life not in accordance with that proclamation. See, using God's name is identifying with him, calling yourself a Christian, putting Philippians 4.13 in your bio or whatever it is on Instagram, whatever, potentially, identifying yourself with him, with your mouth. But with your actions, your priorities, your resources, your time, and your life, you are shining a bad light on the name of of Christ because you're living in a way that is not reflective nor honoring the proclamation that you're making. See, I don't know what's what's going on currently in my life. I'm in a kind of an odd season. I'm a little like like frustrated, a little sad and depressed. I, I think there's, I've had more Students in the last handful of weeks come to me crying on my shoulders that their parents are, are getting divorced than any season in the last eight years that I've been a youth pastor. I, I don't know what's going on at Seacoast or what's going on in culture, but in the last two months, I've probably had 15 different kids from junior high all the way up to young adults telling me that, that, that their mom and dad, who were their Christian role models, are getting, getting divorced. That their marriage isn't working, it's collapsing, and they're, they're splitting up. You know, as I sit with these kids, I sit with these families, I hear their stories and what's kind of going on in their lives, if you press a little deeper into these stories, I'm finding a mom or a dad that's modeling a casual Christianity, and it's creating casualties for their kids, or in their kids. You know, when I, I want, and maybe this is where this is stemming from, I don't know, but I want these families to know God. I, I want these, I, I, want, I want restoration and reconciliation for these marriages. And I want these kids to have wholesome models of what Christianity really looks like. And see, that's not just for them, but for you, right? I want you to know the God that I know. I want you to know how loving he is. I want you to know how grand he is, how, how merciful he is, how, how he deeply cares for you, and he wants to use you to change the entire world. But I don't really know if you're that interested in knowing him. I mean, why else would we not read our Bibles? Why, why else would we not be carving out time, our hands and knees getting to know this God who spoke time and matter all into existence? Why, why else would we not? Well, the only conclusion is we don't really care. 
And we really kind of don't really have or really want a relationship. And I think that Jesus knew this. I think Jesus knew that churches would be full of people that sit in these chairs and say, I'm on. I'm, in the, I'm on Jesus' team. But we live a life that's the opposite of that proclamation. That's why the book of Matthew chapter 15 verse 8 says this. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, who they really are, it is far from me. Could it be that although that you or me, we were proclaiming Christ with our mouths, but we're not really interested in actually knowing him for ourselves. You know, maybe, maybe you expect someone else to grow your faith. Maybe it's the church, or maybe you're expecting, you know, the pastor, if that's me, to, to be the person that's growing your faith. I want, you to, I want you to know that your faith will never grow if it doesn't ever become private. Yes, there's a part of our, of our faith that is corporate, collective at the church, but if this is the only time you're hearing the word of God, you're going to have a puddle for your faith. One that's not going to anchor you in this, in this world. One that's not going to help you with your worries, anxiety, depression, whatever it possibly could be. See, most Christians I know that leave, leave their faith, it's because they never really had one. They say, well, God wasn't really there for me. It's because, well, you never really <laughs> invested in, in, in knowing him for yourself. You know, more often than not, when I think of these types of people, and I'm learning about more areas of my life and my heart that are exactly like this, more often when, when I know somebody that hasn't developed a personal relationship with Christ, almost always they will communicate five words to me that I know where they're at in their faith. That they haven't developed a personal relationship with Christ, and that they're probably in some sense of the way a baby Christian. And these are the five words they tell me. I'm not getting fed. You know, last year uh, at, a, at a summer camp, um, I, I took a bunch of high schoolers up to this place called Hume, and there was this one kid that came up to me, and he said, uh, I'm not getting fed at Seacoast. And I was like, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, you, you know, you're not teaching, you know, verse by verse. You're not, you're not doing hymns. You're not doing all the things, you know, that I think are supposed to grow my faith. So I'm not getting fed. I said, well, all right, talk to me a little more about that. Like, you know, what's going on? And so he began to kind of say what, he was looking for, what he wanted, and things along those lines. And I asked, all right, well, hey, do you work? And he said, yeah, I work at Knott's Berry Farm. I said, cool. Do you tithe? No, uh, no. Hey, do you serve anywhere? No, I don't, I don't, I just attend. All right. Hey, when was the last time you prayed? Hey, when was the last time you fasted? Hey, tell me about the last Bible study you did. And he started to, like, list off some things. I said, well, tell me about, the, like, the details of that, of that book and that story and what God was saying. And I, uh, I can't remember. I said, interesting. I said, could it be possible that I'm not getting fed isn't the right thing to actually be saying to me? More often than not, when I meet with students, young adults, whoever it potentially could be, whenever I hear those words, I'm not getting fed, I almost immediately know it's a sign of some type of spiritual adrift happening kind of in their life. See, what ends up happening when people feel guilty for a moral failure, an unconfessed sin, they're living in sin in some type of way, what they end up doing, and I've seen this time and time again, is they often blame their pastor for not inspiring them to conquer their moral failure or whatever it is, when in reality it's their own sinfulness or their lack of investment in their relationship with Christ that is making them feel distant. So with this kid, I heard his complaints, and then I said, hey, could it be possible that you're not feeling connected to God or feeling like you're growing, not because I'm not, you know, doing verse by verse or we're not doing hymns, because actually because you're sleeping with your girlfriend and you don't think I know. And he went, oh. 
I said, so that, you know that holier-than-thou mentality? That's not going to take you anywhere. God wants, your, God wants your obedience. Let's build a relationship. Let's get to know each other. But that holier-than-thou mentality is a cancer. It, it's going to inhibit you from moving forward in your faith. And so let's actually live the life we're proclaiming to live. And so here's why I tell you this story. Could it be that in any sense of the way you're like that kid? What do I mean by that? Could it be that maybe some of you are feeling stagnant in your faith, like you're not moving forward in your relationship with God? Because maybe you're not even really investing in your relationship with God. Maybe, you're, you're, maybe there is something in your life that you are living in sin, and it is inhibiting you. A sin is a chain for you moving forward in the, in the plan and the path that God has for you. So the Bible says, be holy as I am holy, because that's the only way you can continually walk towards God. Or maybe you're expecting others to feed you, and you haven't like, learned to be a self-feeder. So I'm like legit the most like awkward person you've ever seen around a baby. Like I just don't know what to do with them. You know, like I, I like kids like 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 parents try to hand me their kid and I'm like nope. Like you know, he's like I hold them like they're an expensive vase. Like I'm just awkward. Like, I don't know what to do with them, right? And so Cody, my brother-in-law, knows this. And when he first had his first kid, Sienna, he would try to get me to like hold her all the time. And I was like no chance, right? So one day I'm at his house. He's distracting me with something, and uh, I'm like watching TV or something. And all of a sudden he lays you know Sienna in my lap. And normally I'd bolt off, but I couldn't, right? And so now I'm sitting there with this like ticking time bomb, not knowing what to do, right? So he hands me, the, he hands me uh, her bottle. And so I'm, I'm feeding her, right? Like not like holding her like all weird, you know, <laughs> like in front of her feet, right? And she's looking at me and I'm looking at her and then like the bottle kind of like drops out of her mouth and she just starts crying. I start crying. I don't know what I'm doing, right? And uh, she looks at me with like the funniest look as if she was communicating this sentence. Aren't you going to put that bottle back on my mouth so I can eat? I've met a lot of Christians who have a very similar kind of approach to their faith. That's kind of another person's job to kind of inspire them or, or grow them. If, it's, if that sermon was good enough, if that environment, that worship song, then, then I would feel connected to God and then I would chase him. Then I would run after him or whatever it could possibly be. Now, I've met a lot of Christians who are just like that. And sure, maybe these aren't like conscious thoughts. They're never saying this maybe cognizantly, but nevertheless, that's somewhat of their kind of mentality. But I want you to pl- apply that same exact logic to anything else. You see how really kind of silly it looks. Imagine if I went to you and said, like, dude, I'm getting fat because you're not working out. Like, what? That doesn't make sense. See, just as it takes your involvement, your sacrifice, your your, active surrenderance and involvement in getting physically healthy, so too does it require the exact same things for becoming spiritually healthy. No one else can do it for you. I say this to junior hires all the time. You're not going to get into heaven because of mom and dad. You're going to get into heaven because you have built a personal relationship with your Savior. That is how you're going to get to heaven. And I get it, right? Like, this is going to be a little chilling, like, like, like challenging in our life stage, right? Because, like, you have so many different things going on in your lives. You go to school, you work, trying to balance all your Tinder dates. I get it, right? There's, there's a lot of things going on in your, in your life. But here's something I want you guys to understand. I want you to understand this with every fiber of your being. That if God's not going to make you bad, if Satan can't make you bad, he's going to make you busy. He's going to put things in your life that you're going to prioritize over your relationship with God, and then he's won. His ultimate goal is not for you to bow down to him and read his, the satanic text. All it, his ultimate goal is just to distract you. Then you've missed it. Churches are full of distracted Christians. Heaven will be empty of them. But my hope, my, 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 my prayer, is I want to wake myself out of my apathy, out, out of my indifference. You know, when, when I think about this, I also think that it's possible that maybe we've been modeled a wrong view of faith. We talked about this last week, right? We called it moral therapeutic deism. Somehow we've taken all God's good qualities. He's loving, he's good, he's a provider, he's kind, he's a father. All these good qualities that make us feel good. And then we've intertwined it with the American dream. 
where God is a vending machine that we can go through in our, in our church attendance, our prayer, and the amount of times we read a Bible becomes the currency where we put in the machine and then we can get out whatever we ask from God. That's not, that's not at all the God of Scripture. Maybe the God you believe in doesn't actually really exist because you fashioned it in your own likeness. This is why Paul, I think so often in his books, talks about this idea of there being a pattern. A pattern maybe that, that has been mold, like shaped uh, to you or to me and, and, and we can't conform to it. I mean, he literally says this in, in the book of Romans chapter 12. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament because it speaks to three incredibly important realities of the Christian life. The first is the idea of not conforming to this world. In other words, don't be squeezed into the mold of what your average young adult is supposed to look like. What your average young adult is prioritizing, it is going to leave you empty and hopeless just as it's leaving them empty and hopeless. The second part is to avoid being conformed. Um, we avoid being conformed by the pattern of this world uh, by, by a conscious effort. It, it takes your effort to push against the mold that you have been taught or the mold of society and what it's trying to squeeze you into doing. And then lastly, it takes a transformation and a constantly renewing of our mind. And that's only going to happen through a daily, your daily time with God, through prayer, through reading his word, and through actively being involved in your faith and in church. See, the pattern of this world is really all about consumerism. And so Paul so often urges us not to follow that pattern. But like I said, it takes our effort in not being squeezed into that mold. I mean, just think about it for a second, right? This last week, I, I have 20,000 unread emails. So probably, I'm trying to tackle it. It's going to take a year. And so I'm tackling some of these things, and I've got like a load of mail at my house. I'm going through different things. And I'm amazed by all of the different invitations and offers and ads that I get, right? Just this week, I got uh, the most random things. Deals on pizza, cheap leases on cars, plane tickets to Hawaii for like 12 bucks, uh, a new type of makeup that was going to make my skin look OMG gorgeous so I could finally be happy. And then, uh, oh, the best thing about that is it wasn't even addressed to Chelsea. For some reason, it was addressed to me. I don't know. Uh, just think about it, right? We are hit from almost every single angle and taught from the earliest of ages that the pattern that we are to follow in life is of consumerism. So how could that not spill over into our faith? It takes our conscious effort not to allow that to spill over. I was reading a, um, an article this last week by a psychologist and also a theologian, a guy named Pete Ward. I want you to read it with me. It says this. Consumerism represents an alternative source of meaning to the Christian gospel. No longer merely an economic system, consumerism has become the American worldview, the framework through which we interpret everything else, including God, the gospel, and church. When we approach Christianity as consumers rather than seeing it as a comprehensive way of life, Christianity becomes just one more brand we consume along with Apple and Starbucks to express our identity. And the emotion of Jesus Christ from Lord to label means to live as a Christian no longer carries an expectation of obedience, good works, and involvement in the church, but rather the perpetual consumption of Christian merchandises and experiences. You know, when I... This is the reason that so many self-professing Christians look no different than other Americans. I've been doing ministry for eight years in student ministries here. And through this time, probably 5,000 students have walked through this building and hundreds and hundreds of parents that I've gotten to meet and interact with. And I don't mean this like in a pharisaical way, in some condescending way, but most churchgoers have not adopted a biblical worldview. All they've really kind of done is they've like added a Jesus fish or a he is greater than I bumper sticker to their identities. Other than that, they, they, don't, really, they don't really get it. And I think and this is the reason that many of us have maybe entered into a relationship with Christ, have in the past or will in the future 
chase some type of like emotional high that we, we're, we're attempting to woo us back into God's presence because we're consumers, right? And we've been taught the wrong model. So it's all about these feelings. It's all about these, this rush being wooed so that I can kind of feel God, therefore I'll run after, I'll chase God. See, that, that model of faith is pretty egocentric because at the heart of consumerism is you and, and it's me. And so my prayer for you is the same prayer that I've been kind of giving myself is that I would move from being a spectator to actually being a participant. You know, a spectator doesn't really have to get involved. They kind of sit there, they eat their hot dog, maybe they sit in these chairs and drink coffee, but other than that, nothing really is required of them other than to sit. Being a participant requires your effort, it requires your, your, your investment in becoming and your active surrenderance in who God wants you to become. And so Paul talked often about these types of things too because he knew our natural default was to kind of be a spectator in our faith, to be some sense of a consumer. And so he uses pretty harsh words, harsher words than I'm using. He says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, merely infants in Christ. So I've been to this place, it's called Corinth. He's addressing a church saying that this church is full of people who are self-professing Christians, but I can't even talk to you as I would talk to Christians because you're still worldly. You're still doing a bunch of things you're not supposed to be doing. So I find this so interesting. He calls them infants. And he continues in verse 2 and 3 and he says this, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. In other words, milk is what you give a baby because one, they can't digest it. Or, I'm sorry, they can't digest anything else. And then two, because they, they have to be fed. They're babies. They can't feed themselves, so you give them a bottle. So the question I want to kind of remain, uh, answer is this. I want to spend a, the remaining of our time answering this. How can you know if you're a spiritual infant or a spiritually mature man or woman? I have really quick three thoughts I want, to, I want to depart to you. The first is, a follower of Christ who's a spiritually mature Christian is going to care to know God daily. He's going to care to know God daily. God wrote a text message to you and to me. It's 66 books. It's over 3,500 years. It's written by 40 different authors. And it's the story of God and the story of how you fit in his equation. It almost blows me away that like, I have to convince myself and I have to try to convince you guys to read this thing daily. The creator of all things has spoken to you. The Bible is the only book in human history that every time you pick it up, the author is present with you as you read it helping you decipher his spirit. It's going to help you, to help you, help you read it, understand what, it, what it's talking about. So a follower of Christ will, one, care to know God daily, too. Want others to know the God that they know. Has a heart to bring, invite, talk about Christ is the center of their life, and so they are consumed with wanting other people to know the God that they know. And then the last thing. I'm going to give you an example, but if for some reason, <laughs> if for some reason my mom ever comes here, do not tell her I told you the story, all right? There's a moral at the end of it. You'll see it. So growing up, uh, I, uh, and we're kind of wrap up with the story, I grew up in a little church, and one morning, um, we were really kind of in a rush, and my mom was kind of like the worship leader, and so really in a rush to get there, and, uh, and we were merging onto the freeway, and as we were merging onto the freeway, I guess my mom some, somehow cut this person off, and uh, the guy like, rolled down his window and was like, you mother beep, you know, just like flipped my mom off, right? And so my mom, so angry, so flustered, flipped the person back off, right? Now I'm in the back seat, I'm four. I'm in my little like chair, you know? And uh, I thought my mom was saying good morning, right? So I roll the window down, and I'm like, you too, bud, right? Like, good morning, right? Flipping the guy off, right? And the guy like looks at me like real weird, like, what the heck? And like drives off, like, a four-year-old just flipped me off? Like, what? that's the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. 
And uh, so we get to church. We finally pull into the parking lot, and, and uh, my mom drops me off at the children's area. And, uh, and a girl named Lisa, she was my, uh, uh, my leader or whatever it is, she comes over and she says, good morning, Matt. And I said, good morning, right? <laughs> and she's like, what? Where did you learn that, right? And I was like, oh, my mom. Uh, you know the ladies doing worship? Yeah, yeah, she taught me all that on the, on the way over here. And she's like, what? Debbie, your mom, your, your mom flipped off a person and, and then you flipped them off too? Yeah, I was like, doesn't that mean good morning? She's like, no, sweetheart, it, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean good morning, right? That's not at all what it means, right? So on our way home, and here's why I show the story with you. My mom with tears in her eyes, and I remember this. I'm, she straps me in and we're on our way home. She brought a red light and she turns to me and she's crying with tears in her eyes. And she says, Matthew, and without even knowing that I told my, my leader or whatever it was, she says, what I did earlier was completely wrong, and I apologize. And I don't, I don't want you to ever do that again because it's not a godly thing to do. And I have that memory ingrained in me. Now, it, was, it was 22 years ago. A spiritually, mature, a spiritually mature Christian does what is right, but when they don't, because the Bible says we're constantly going to fall short, has a heart of repentance, and is constantly asking God for his forgiveness. And the point is this. Are you convicted by your sin? We're all doing something we shouldn't be doing. Are you convicted by your sin in such a way that it causes you to right your wrongs and then come before God asking for his forgiveness and asking that he changes your life? As we end tonight, my hope, my prayer is that you come into a deeper relationship with your creator because that's kind of what I've been praying for myself all summer. And it all really starts by reading his word. So I have a challenge for you guys that I'm, gonna, I'm doing and I would love for you guys to join me in it. It is to read your Bible every morning. Wake up 30 minutes early, whatever you possibly have to do, get in your Bible. Your faith will never grow apart from it. It is the primary tool that God is, fa- is using to fashion our faith. And so I get it. It's a big book. There's a lot of things in there. I would love to walk you through it if you have any questions. Start in the book of Romans, then go to Hebrews. Romans is an awesome book. Uh, we journey through parts of it today. I, I would, your, my hope, my prayer for you is that you can really take this challenge seriously. And I promise you if you do, your life will be totally changed this summer. And maybe you don't have a Bible. I'm going to give you a Bible. I have hundreds of them, right? So if you don't have a Bible on that back table over there, there there's three, and under the thing, there's hundreds of them. Grab one. It's yours. It's your gift. Write your name on it. It is yours, all right? So that's my challenge. Um, It's what I'm doing this summer, and I would love you to join me with it. Let me pray for you guys, and then we're watching a movie. Let's pray. God, I, uh, Scripture is always supposed to be a mirror. God, where we, where we read your words and it exposes really who we are in light of, a lot of you, a lot of your character, a lot of your perfection. And so, Father, I just pray, God, not that this message is discouraging, rather, God, that it's convicting and encouraging. I pray, Father, for this, the people in here, Lord God, that they come to a deeper relationship with you because they're falling more in love with you. Lord, I just ask, God, t- t- tonight, God, you move us Open our hearts, soften our hearts, open our eyes to who you are, clear our ears of the the junk, God, that we're hearing every single day, and and let us be more persistent in hearing your voice. So, Father, we love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.